Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Egypt's military leader prepares to run for president next month, we ask if there's any hope of a return to democracy after months of military rule. And from Britain, we hear about a sudden dip in the fortunes of Labour leader Ed Miliband. But we begin in the Central African Republic, one of the poorest countries in the world, where months of intercommunal violence have left thousands dead and hundreds of thousands displaced from their homes. Peacekeeping forces from France and the African Union have failed to halt the killing, spearheaded by rival militias, the mainly Muslim Selika and the mostly Christian Anti-Balaka. The European Union is poised to send more troops, but for the most part the international community and the world's media have been ignoring the conflict. Our correspondent Lara Marlow has been in the Central African Republic for the past week and she joins me now from the capital, Bangui. Lara, could you explain the nature of this conflict? It's uh, partly tribal. It's mostly religious, in my opinion. It's a power struggle. It's a power grab between uh, the people who've ruled the Central African, misruled, I should say, the Central African Republic since independence from France in 1960, uh, who are who are mostly who are Christian, basically, and Muslims who, although they are wealthier because they're the merchant class, uh, have been excluded from political power. Uh, they are concentrated in the north. A lot of them have family ties with Chad and Sudan. And uh, what happened was a, a, a Muslim coalition of militias uh, formed at the end of 2012, calling themselves the Seleka, which means alliance, uh, rampaged their way south across the country, all the way to Bangui, where they overthrew uh, the president, who is a Christian, uh, in uh, March of, of last year. Now, he, he'd been a very, very poor president, like all of the ones they've had, I'm afraid. A lot of people were very happy to see him go, and people actually greeted uh, the Seleka with open arms for about the first 24 hours. But when the extent of the killing and looting and rape uh, became known and was realized, uh, people very, very quickly turned against them. And the Seleka, from March of last year until December of last year, really imposed a reign of terror on, on the Christians of the Central African Republic. There were a huge, horrendous abuses. The Christians rose up in September against the Selika, formed their own militia called the Anti-Balaka, uh, and began fighting. And that this it really reached a, a, a sort of um, a, a, as the summit, and you could say it reached um, a, a pinnacle of violence in the beginning of December, when a thousand people were killed in just two days. And that's when the French sent in the Sangaris peacekeeping force. Uh, the African Union sent in a peacekeeping force called MISCA. Uh, and the violence has diminished somewhat, but it, it flares up uh, every now and then. It, it flared up quite badly last week and over the weekend. Uh, there were 20 people killed in a grenade attack on, in, during a wake on Friday night. Uh, there were another eight people shot dead by, uh, by Chadian peacekeepers um, also at the weekend. So it, it continues to be a very insecure, unstable uh, place. Now, you've spent time with both of the militias responsible for most of the killing. Who are these people exactly, and what do they stand for? Well, the, the, the anti-Balaka, uh, let, me, well, let me put it this way, both militias are very fragmented. Um, within the anti-Balaka, which is the, the mainly Christian militia, 
you have a lot of uh, supporters of the former president, uh, François Bozizet, who's in exile in Benin, who wants to come back to power. He told the radio station within the last week that he, he is suffering from not being in power. Um, and those people tended to be in the Central African Army, which is known as the FACA, F-A-C-A, here. Uh, that has been disbanded. Uh, there's an arms embargo on the CAR. And uh, there was a very unfortunate incident on the 4th of February when the, the interim president, Catherine Samba Panza, uh, announced that she was re-establishing a national army and a group of army um, soldiers in uniform lynched a man in the crowd saying he was a, a, a Celica. And they dismembered him and threw tires on him and, and burned him. Uh, I think he was still alive when they burned him. So that the, the uh, restitution of the armed forces here has not gone anywhere since then. Uh, a lot of the anti-Balaka are former uh, Central African army who want to be reinstated in the Central African army when it is uh, reactivated. And then you have another huge faction in the anti-Balaka, which are basically juvenile delinquents, the criminals, um, young people on drugs, and they've joined it. Uh, for the same reason uh, that, that a lot of young people join the Silica. There are no jobs here, there's no employment. And uh, they wanted to participate in the, the, the loot and the thrills. They wanted to, to, to get in on, on what was happening. Uh, and the problem is now for the anti-Balaka, in the same way that it was for the Silica when they were in power, that they don't really control all of their men. And that's one reason you have such horrific violence and such grisly killings. Um, the Seneca, on the other hand, uh, most of their fighters are scattered around the country. They're in the north um, and in the east. Uh, you don't. There are a few neighborhoods in Bangui uh, where they are basically uh, hiding, holding out, uh, being attacked by the anti-Balaka. Um, they tend to wear kafias around their necks. You know the the Arab scarves. Um, the most of them speak Arabic. Uh, they have strong links with Sudan and Chad. Indeed, when they originally descended on Bangui, a lot of the Seleka ranks were actually Chadian and Sudanese mercenaries, including Janjaweed, the people who reigned terror in Darfur. Uh, so you have two groups, uh, which are neither of which is uh, very recommendable, um, and, and both of, of whom have carried their basically taking it out on civilians uh, rather than kill each other. Uh, they go and the Christian militia goes and kills Muslim civilians. Um, the Muslim militia goes and kills Christian civilians. And you, I've heard over and over both from, from both sides, uh, Muslims tell me all of the Christians are with the anti-Balika, but not all of us are with the Seleka. And the Christians tell me all of the Muslims are with the Seleka, but not all of us are with, with the anti-Balika. So it's just identification of a religious group with the militia that is used by both sides to justify their abuses. There seems to be another identification going on, which is to do with the international peacekeepers, so that uh, you mentioned this uh, incident last week where the Chadian peacekeepers had killed eight people, and many of the Christians appeared to associate the Chadian uh, peacekeepers with the, uh, the Muslim side, and likewise, many of the Muslims appear to think that the French peacekeepers are essentially protected the Christians? 
That's right, Dennis. Um, there are historical reasons for this. It's, I don't know how deep you want to get into it, but um, it goes very deep into history and geopolitics. Uh, Idris Dedi, the dictator of, the, of Chad since 1990, since when he overthrew Hissan Abrey, uh, has always meddled in uh, Central African politics. Um, the same might be said of France, uh, which is Oh, has really been the kingmaker here, too, sometimes in coordination with Deby, which is who is a French ally. But uh, Deby uh, put Bozizé in power back in 2003 in a coup, and then he overthrew him uh, by helping Jotodja, the Seleka leader, uh, overthrow him 10 years later. Uh, so it's, it's kind of understandable that people don't, that the Christians anyway, don't trust the Chadians. Um, also, I think that even going back much further in history, there are folk memories on the Christian side of the Arabs coming from Sudan and Chad and, and capturing people en masse and selling them as slaves. Um, the, the, the Arab Muslims were doing that too. They were probably animist rather than Christian at the time because most of them had been converted by missionaries. But there, there are sort of folk memories of, of Arabs as um, slave owners or slave uh, merchants, slave traders. Um, that, that's part of the, of the um, resentment as well. Um, as far as the French are concerned, obviously the former colonial power uh, in any country is always subject to suspicion. Uh, I think that the French did something very courageous and generous in coming here this time. Uh, Francois Hollande really didn't, didn't need the intervention in the CAR um, the French can't afford it. Their economy's in a terrible state. They've already lost two peacekeepers. They mean well. Uh, but the fact is that their arrival reversed the balance of power. Uh, the Seleka were in power uh, until the Antibalika attacked them at the beginning of December in Bangui. The Antibalika marched on Bangui. And the arrival of the French uh, effectively uh, drove, drove the Seleka out. So that's one reason the Muslims so resent them. Um, and the, the Muslims also seem to have a deeper resentment towards France as a, they see them as crusaders, they see them as a Christian power. I think there's, there's something of that religious sentiment there as well. The international community is supporting this new transitional, essentially technocratic government. What chance does that government has a, have of success? Uh, well, one would hope that it would have a chance of success. Every successive government, basically there's been a new regime here every 10 years, and every time there's a very brief honeymoon when for a few days or weeks, people really hope it's going to be different this time. Um, that is sort of the feeling at the moment, although they sell these little sort of two-penny news sheets on the streets of Bangui, and they're all talking about the government of amateurism. And, and it's true that the government here is pretty powerless. They have virtually no resources whatsoever. Uh, the civil servants received their salary for the first time in six months last week. Um, they, they have no money, no equipment, uh, and, and people are not trained either. There's only one university in the whole country, and it's been shut for a year and a half because of the violence. Uh, so it's, it's just... It's, it's like starting at ground zero and trying to build a country. Uh, and, I, and I think it's just an immense task, and it's probably pretty overwhelming. And they, they don't really have the, 
the leaders, the, the, the sort of elite, so the French, unfortunately, never really trained in the elite here the way they did in Senegal and the Ivory Coast and, and other colonies. Um, so, it, you know, some some experts, Western commentators in particular, say that what the CIR really needs uh, is a transitional administration like what we saw in Kosovo and East Timor. Uh, it, it, it may come to that, uh, but the, the Central Africans are very proud, and I, I think they would resist that kind of guardianship. Um, a lot of them have told me this is a new this is a new group. We must give them a chance, or, or let some younger people have a try. Uh, this, uh, as we approach the 20th anniversary of the start of the genocide in Rwanda on the 7th of April, a lot of people have been making comparisons between Rwanda and the Central African Republic. And yet the world hasn't really been paying all that much attention to this conflict. Why do you think this conflict has gone uh, relatively unreported? Oh, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, one of the, the eight workers I interviewed said it's because the plane crashed in the South Pacific and because of Ukraine. Uh, there are bigger news stories with more obvious um, things at stake than the CAR. This is a, is a very isolated country. There's only one direct flight a week from Paris, and even the, the, there's only one flight out a week, uh, and that one takes 12 and a half hours because it goes through Senegal. Um, it, it's landlocked. Um, I think a lot of people aren't fluent in French. It's extremely expensive to get here. It's extremely expensive to work here. Um, and you know, the, even the numbers of dead, it's, it's probably around 3,000, three or 4,000 killed so far. Um, that is not, uh, you know, it's not a huge number like in Rwanda where you had 800,000 people killed in, in 100 days. Um, it's also not like Rwanda in the sense that Rwanda was a tiny country, but w- with a big population of 8 to 10 million. This is a huge country. It's the size of France and Belgium combined. Uh, with a population of only 5 million, a very spread out. There's very little accessibility once you're inside of the Central African Republic. Only 3% of the roads are paved in this country. And I can tell you for having ridden over these, these dirt tracks um, over the past week that it, 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 it's quite an ordeal traveling around inside the country. There, there are barely even, even tracks. You're, you need a four-wheel drive, um, it's just, petrol is extremely expensive. There are huge queues at petrol stations now. So it's not an easy country to work with. And in addition to that, uh, you have the danger of malaria and so on and so forth. So I, I think it's, it's the same whether we're talking about media or the international community as a whole. It's The stakes are too small. Uh, it's, it's too hard a slog. And people don't, don't just don't re- really see the point. And yet... Um, if you once you're here, you see that the, the the stakes are actually quite large in terms of regional stability because this also involves Cameroon, Chad, Sudan. It involves all the neighboring countries. Um, the Christians of CAR now are are, are claiming that that um, the Muslims are bringing in people from Boko Haram, the extremist group in Nigeria. Um, but it, it's possible that, it, that there could be Islamic extremists later down the line, although that hasn't happened yet. Certainly, the world was more interested in Mali where that was the case. Uh, so we'll see which way it goes. But it's, it's not Rwanda. The, the, the numbers of dead aren't anywhere near as many 
Rwanda was, was purely ethnic. It was Hutus versus Tutsis. In, in the CAR, the, the dominant factor really is religion, uh, which is also cultural. Uh, but um, you know, religious uh, conflict is, is also considered as a form of, of ethnic conflict. And, and what is happening is ethnic cleansing. A million citizens of the CAR have been displaced by the conflict. That's a fifth of the population of the country. Lara Marlu in Bangui, thank you. And you can read Lara's reports from the Central African Republic on irishtimes.com. Egypt's military leader, General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has ended months of speculation and surprised nobody by stepping down from his military posts and announcing that he'll run for president in an election next month. Hugely popular and with only one declared opponent so far, General Sisi is seen as almost certain to win. And he won't face a candidate from the Muslim Brotherhood, once Egypt's biggest political movement now banned with its leaders imprisoned. General Sisi led the coup that overthrew President Mohamed Morsi, Egypt's first democratically elected president and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. Since then, he's presided over an increasingly authoritarian regime that has cracked down with great brutality on the Brotherhood, 529 of whose members were last month sentenced to death for the murder of a police officer. To discuss Egypt's future and the challenges facing its leadership, I'm joined by our Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen from Nicosia, and here in studio by Dr. Vincent Durek, who lectures on Middle East politics at University College Dublin. Michael, why is General Sisi so popular among the Egyptians? Well, uh, he is largely popular because he did overthrow Morsi, who had become very unpopular. And uh, Egyptians had this feeling that... um, the uh, Brotherhood was not interested in serving uh, the population while it ruled, but in grabbing power. And uh, that is exactly what it did. It uh, placed a lot of, uh, of its own loyalists, some people say up to half a million, in uh, civil service and public institution jobs. And it also fired 3,500 judges that it didn't like. Uh, and uh, reappointed some people that it did. Um, so getting rid of Morsi was a very popular uh, uh, act by uh, the people who went into the streets on the 30th of June and uh, with the help of the army uh, unseated him. I mean, the army simply went into his office and turned off his phone. And that was the end of his presidency. And General Sisi is personally associated with this and seems to have become something of a unifying figure for many, at least of the non-Brotherhood Egyptians. Yes, well, he was appointed by Morsi. He was selected amongst all of the officers in the Supreme Military Council to be the defense minister and army chief. And he was selected because he comes from a family of of Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, relatives, and um, he also is a devout person, and his wife, unlike the, any other Egyptian president, wears a headscarf. Um, he is also being portrayed as another Nasser, which is a mistake, because he isn't another Nasser. Uh, what can we expect from the election next month? Is there going to be actually any proper kind of campaign? Will the army allow any proper campaign? Well, there's supposed to be a 21-day campaign uh, ending in the election on the 26th and 27th. 
and um, uh, they have actually already started the campaign by putting posters of Sisi all over Egypt. Uh, and the, his sole rival at the moment, who is called Hamdim Sabahi, who is a Nasserist and a leftist, and who came in third in the 2012 presidential election, has complained about this uh, fact that the campaigning has already started. Also, he has complained about the way uh, the registration of nominations is going forward. And this actually began this week with Egyptians signing petitions asking for Sisi and Sabahi both to be nominated for the presidency. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood obviously are not going to be running because they're banned. Has that movement actually been crushed? Well, the Muslim Brotherhood has still many loyal supporters, if not members, because being a member of the Muslim Brotherhood now is, uh, puts one in league with the terrorists, as, uh, as they, the government says. Um, but uh, the Muslim Brotherhood had many supporters because it provided services to people who were in the poorest sectors of the population. It uh, ran schools and clinics and um, provided welfare. It, it gave free food out, uh, particularly at election time when it had candidates running. And um, it also... Uh, appeal to the devout Egyptian uh, urban and rural poor. Uh, Vincent, uh, you, you heard uh, just a moment ago, Michael was saying that many Egyptians have been comparing General Sisi with Nasser. But when Nasser took power in the 1950s, he took over a country which uh, was full of resources, which was relatively wealthy in comparison to some of its neighbours or to equivalent countries. If General Sisi takes power and becomes president next month, he's going to inherit a lot of problems. He is going to inherit a lot of problems and whether or not uh, he has a programme to address those problems is, I think, very much uh, to be doubted. Um, and it's interesting you should make that comparison because um, in the last week, I think, uh, Nader Fergani, one of the leading Egyptian social scientists, um, published a piece um, in Al-Ahram in which he, to the surprise of many, critiqued uh, Sisi precisely on these grounds and uh, he himself reached back to the comparison with the 1950s when, and, and indeed later into the 60s when Egypt could st still um, at least affect to compete with uh, countries that were at the same level of socioeconomic development in the 1950s, India, China, etc. Um, and indeed was associated with technological advances, uh, which would surprise very many people. And Fergani's point was that, A, this simply doesn't apply to Egypt today, and B, there is no sense that Sisi or those around him have any programme to uh, restore Egypt, if you like, to that position. Um, Egypt is still possessed of resources, but the problem is the mismanagement of the country over the last several decades is such that it faces what look like insurmountable challenges in the socioeconomic sphere, whatever about politically. The constitution that was approved a few months ago, it is quite prescriptive about a number of things, including how much of the budget ought to be spent on health and education, and it also gives a hugely powerful role to the army. How significant are these factors for, uh, for Sisi if he becomes president? 
I think they're significant in in precisely the ways you you've set out. Uh, they they limit what may be done in terms of overall spending in particular sectors, um, but also the very fact that the constitution uh, enshrines the privileged position of the military. Um, continues to shield the military from civilian oversight, both in terms of its day-to-day activities, but also in terms of its uh, financing. All of this raises the spectre that CC is a much more partial actor, if you like, than than Nasser ever was. I mean, Nasser um, admittedly came to power with uh, no coherent programme in 1952, but by the mid-50s, Um, had, I think it's safe to say, adopted, however popular or unpopular, it's now seen to be uh, a coherent programme for socio-economic development. Uh, Sisi may be, as so many Egyptians seem to think, the hero of the revolution last year, but whether or not that aura will survive the next several years is very much, I think, to be doubted. Egypt's new rulers have formed new regional alliances too, notably with Saudi Arabia and with the United Arab Emirates. Can you explain something about these shifting alliances? Well, I mean, you've got a very, on the face of it, peculiar situation in one sense in that uh, uh, a government uh, regime, excuse me, that overthrew a Muslim Brotherhood government finds its strongest regional support in the self-styled Islamic state that is Saudi Arabia. But of course... It is a function both of domestic and regional ambitions um, uh, and domestic pretensions on the part of the Saudi regime that explain this because, of course, the Saudis um, have always been quite hostile uh, given the peculiar brand of uh, Wahhabi Islam uh, that they follow, have always been hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood. So the emergence of a government led by the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was a threat. In any case... There is a longer regional rivalry between Saudi and Egypt for preeminence in the region. So that, I think, in, in significant part explains the uh, jubilation in Riyadh when Morsi was overthrown. Um, and the Emirates, the Emiratis, see this very much the same way in contradistinction, for instance, to Qatar, which threw in its lot with uh, Morsi, with the Muslim Brotherhood, and now finds itself out in the cold in that Arab regional setting. Michael uh, Jansen, Egypt's military rulers are not only locking up members of the Muslim Brotherhood, but they're also now locking up the democracy activists that oppose both Mubarak and Morsi. Is there any hope left for the democracy movement there? Well, the uh, democracy activists uh, have been locked up for uh, largely because they uh, protested at a time when uh, the government had banned anything, any demonstrations, um, even assemblies of 10 persons and over uh, from taking place uh, without permission. Now, the, the, the democracy activists promptly went into the streets and did exactly what they were prohibited from doing. And they also uh, took up the call against military trials for civilians, which uh, has been a major demand of the revolution since 2011. Uh, so quite a lot of these uh, secular people have been uh, arrested and detained, and some have been sentenced to three years in prison. Some have been released on bail and are awaiting trial, uh, including the head of the April 6 movement, Ahmed Maher, who also took part in the demonstration last uh, June 
against Morsi, but he has now come out against the military government or military-backed government. And have those democracy activists got any hope left of actually achieving the kind of democratic change they were hoping for? Well, the Egyptians I have spoken to remain optimistic. They think Egypt is going through a major revolutionary phase, and they see that this phase will not end until the demands of the original revolution of 2011 are met, at least in large part. And that means accountability, end to military trials, uh, reform of the security forces, the military out of politics, and a new generation of leaders. I mean, the people who are now in the interim government are all old uh, figures from the Mubarak era, in fact. A lot of them are, at least. Uh, Vincent Jurek, uh, you now have the army back in control. You've got a general who's about to become the president. You've got the opposition locked up and, uh, and banned. Is Egypt's revolution over? When you describe it like that, it certainly sounds like it is. Um, but I think that that's probably an overly simplistic analysis. I think the, the suggestion that we're simply back where we were before the events of January, February 2011 is um, to ignore so much that has happened um, and not merely events, but shifts in underlying political dynamics um, that, are, that are significant. And in fact... There are all sorts of dangers associated with the overt move into positions of political and, of course, economic power on the part of the army. So whether or not, uh, as we were saying earlier, whether or not General Sisi, um, newly civilianized or otherwise, has the capacity to, to meet those challenges is going to be uh, very significant. I rather doubt it. And then the question is, what comes next? And I do think that there are several phases in this whole set of developments yet to come. Uh, finally, Vincent, uh, what does uh, Egypt's move towards authoritarianism, or indeed, as you're describing it, this unfolding uh, tra- phase of revolutions or of revolutionary events, what does that mean for the Arab Spring more generally? I think it means different things for different places. Um, I think uh, it almost certainly bolsters the, the, the caution uh, or the cautious approach that has been taken, for instance, in Yemen, where for all of its problems, uh, they celebrate the fact that they haven't descended into Syrian-style or even Egyptian-style violence. Um, people who might be considered enemies are still speaking to one another. Um, I think, likewise, in Tunisia, it has uh, deepened the concern of Anatta there, of the, the uh, largest Islamist force uh, to cooperate with other actors in the political system because they don't want to go back to the the level of exclusion that they've suffered. But of course it also has implications in terms of regional geopolitics. It has major implications for the very shifting uh, set of alliances that are imbricated in the conflict in Syria and it has very significant implications as we've been saying for the interrelations between the various Gulf states. Vincent Jurek and Michael Jansen, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Britain's Labour leader, Ed Miliband, has been widely derided by the media since he defeated his brother David, the darling of the chattering classes, to capture the party leadership in 2010. Despite his poor public image, Miliband has led his party shrewdly, outmanoeuvring the government on everything from the phone hacking scandal to energy prices and maintaining a consistent poll lead. The past few weeks have seen that poll lead shrink, amid government gloating over a budget that seemed to have wrong-footed Miliband, 
and signs of discontent within Labour about the leader's lack of boldness. Our London editor, Mark Hennessy, joins me in studio now. Mark, has Ed Miliband's luck run out? No, I wouldn't say that his luck has run out, but he has certainly uh, run into some choppy waters. And I think that was probably always inevitable coming into uh, 12 months out from the election. Uh, nerves are, are always going to get a bit fractured. And they have particularly started to fray, given that there have been signs of economic improvement in Britain. And there is a danger, according to some people one talks to in Labour, that Labour could be seen as being resentful of the fact that economic figures have started to improve. Now, they need to obviously avoid that, but equally they need to make the point that even though figures are improving in certain areas and look like they're going to get better, that doesn't mean that Joe's public in the British High Street is going to be feeling better off by the time uh, they come to the polls in May 14. There is a chance that uh, real wages will actually have seen their first real improvement in five or six years uh, by the time that happens. But the argument that they can make then is, well, that's fine for one year, but you're five years behind. Uh, the question that they they have got to try and uh, get through to the, the British public is that the cost of living crisis still remains as relevant an argument as it did when it was first made by Miliband with considerable success. Now, his arguments about energy uh, last uh, year uh, were populist nonsense, this idea of uh, a price freeze, but nevertheless, it has set the agenda ever since, and we've seen it even just in the last week or two, where uh, Ofgem has uh, now pushed for an ordered uh, competition uh, markets uh, authority investigation into the entire energy issue. And you can trace the seeds of that back very much to what um, uh, Miliband did and the fact that the Conservatives largely have been following him. And he has been, actually, despite, uh, as I said, uh, the, the fact that mm. most of the media has criticised him from the very beginning, he has quite deftly uh, outmanoeuvred them on a number of issues. But just now, the Chancellor, uh, George Osborne, does appear to have wrong-footed him on the budget. He does, and certainly what they've done on pensions and allowing people to uh, take the money without having to buy annuities uh, is, is, is clearly very, very popular with uh, an older age group. And clearly they are becoming ever more important important in terms of the voting arithmetic and equally they're important solely because of their potential attractiveness to UKIP. So uh, Rosburn has to a certain degree uh, neutered uh, that particular section. Miliband's problem in some ways is that he makes really good scores on occasions, like you said on phone hacking, again on energy, but it then falls back and it's almost as if he has to make the progress anew every time. It's not a question of building and then moving on from the foothills up the side of the mountain and getting to the apex. Uh, some commentators have described this strategy he has as the Mount Sinai strategy where he sort of comes out with some initiative mm -hmm. and then he disappears up Mount Sinai and eventually comes down with the tablets of stone. But in the meantime, everybody's wondering yeah, Where he is. It, it, it's an it, it, it's it's the politics of the intellectual, um, and you know he, he wasn't Ralph Miliband's son, or isn't Ralph Miliband's son for nothing. And coming from that North London Primrose Hill um, uh, Labour elite. Um, He's not great when he's talking to Joe Public uh, in, in some level. He, he bears certain similarities with Major, uh, with John Major, the Conservative Prime Minister of the 90s, uh, who uh, had this problem of coming across on TV. He was always very grey, and yet anybody who's ever met John Major 
has a completely different impression of him. Miliband on a personal basis is much warmer, funnier, brighter, all the, 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 the positive things that you can say. It doesn't come across in the 10 o'clock news in an interview uh, with Nick Robinson. Where uh, Miliband does have a problem is uh, it that makes him different from, from Major is that he doesn't have that sense of the common touch when he is out on the streets. He always does feel as if he has been temporarily uh, transported from Primrose Hill. There's uh, uh, some argument going on within the Labour Party about the manifesto and Mm. particularly about how bold it ought to be. What's that all about? Well, there have been big uh, arguments about it. John Crudus, the uh, Dagenham MP, was appointed to lead a root and branch review of pretty much everything that would feed into the preparation of a manifesto. Now, Crotus is a very bright, um, uh, thoughtful individual who clearly wanted to be very radical. As they're getting towards uh, signing off on preparations for an election campaign, the usual degree of caution that tends to afflict political parties is beginning to come into play. And there are people within Labour who argue that Labour doesn't need to do uh, as much as Crotus and his uh, his ilk would argue, that Labour can win power with vote, a vote in the late 30s, some will say even lower than that. Um, and that therefore that if they see, if they put themselves forward as the people who will make Britain anew and do a kind of a 1945 uh, uh, sort of image to it, that that will be treated treated with, with scorn by a British public that no longer believes in the political class to ch- in their ability to change the world and that what you have to be seen is being managerial, that you can tackle things on the edges, uh, so one or two big issues but you're not going to try and do everything and so therefore uh, we, we saw for instance in terms of devolution which would be one of the things that uh, Crotus would be very keen on to drive power into every local authority that contradicts every centralising uh, trait and instinct in Labour and, I mean, it's, it's common to both of the big parties. It is particularly uh, prevalent uh, within Labour. And we saw a few weeks back where the devolution document that Labour in Scotland produced to try and nullify and neuter the SNP, the, the draft had been really ambitious. By the time we saw the final document, it was pretty much neutered. One of the big obstacles to change, or at least to the perception of change, is viewed to be the uh, Labour's main spokesman on the economy, Ed Balls. Something of a bruiser, but also a bit of a throwback to a previous era? He is. I mean, he's very bright, um, a, a very talented fellow. He is, however, um, uh, cursed by the, his association with Gordon Brown and with the Treasury uh, during that particular period. And you can argue about how much blame Labour should have taken for the 2007 crisis. It doesn't matter that Labour has a valid argument to make about a lot of it. The public debate on that issue has been lost and it is never going to be uh, open to, de- uh, to to be refought by Labour in any way that they could ever win it. Uh, Balls has not managed to restore Labour's economic credibility. It is still extraordinary that despite the, uh, the mishandling by uh, Osborne and the Conservatives on so many points uh, economically over the last number of years, that the Conservatives still have a great attraction with the public at large uh, on on the economy and in terms of their ability to uh, to run the shop far more so than, than Ed Ball. And the fact that Balls stubbornly refuses to accept some of the bleedingly obvious points is the bit in some ways that makes him politically vulnerable. The Conservatives at the moment appear to be full of confidence and uh, for the first time they seem to think that uh, victory is very much in their sights. What could still go wrong for them between now and 2015? 
Well, it depends what your, your definition of victory is. If the definition of victory is a single-party majority government, uh, then frankly, I've got as much ability to bring that about as David Cameron has. It is not going to happen unless some really, really extraordinary things uh, take place. Uh, they're into a new world uh, with UKIP. Whatever vote UKIP get in the general election of 2015, it is not going to be 3%, which is what they got in 2010. And the single most important figure that people have to understand about British politics is that the share of the vote enjoyed by the two biggest parties has fallen in every single election since 1951. Every single election. And sometimes the share that the Tories have is bigger or or Labour is bigger or whatever, but the combined share has fallen and has fallen in everyone. It is going to fall again in 2015, maybe marginally perhaps, but it is going to fall. That means that there is an ever smaller pool uh, in which the two bigger parties can garner uh, a majority and the British voting system is inherently biased against uh, the Conservatives and in favour of Labour because of the way in which the constituencies are currently um, uh, uh, divided and the way in which uh, Labour can get uh, people elected on very small votes in the north of England uh, constituencies and in some ways the 20, the result of the 2015 election was decided when Nick Clegg refused to the, the Boundary Commission review. The, finally, uh, Ed Miliband himself, uh, he's uh, at the moment appears to be in trouble. Is there anything he can do to regain the initiative in the short term? Well, he, I mean, he he needs to he needs to make himself more human. I mean, it's it's that big problem that the British public simply have not warmed to him. They see him as being somewhat geeky, being intellectual. It's all, it is pretty much unfair, but life is unfair. And when you want to be Prime Minister, it is particularly unfair. Um, it is It is difficult to see how he can get the public to warm to him. Therefore, they have to get to the point where they simply respect him as the man who will keep everybody safe uh, over the next couple of years and regard him as being the brightest kid in the block. And in an environment where Cameron has many weaknesses as a politician, he's not particularly strategic, he has a tendency of of going for the, the lowest common denominator sometimes, but he is at his absolute best when somebody puts him in a corner and forces him to fight. And election campaigns tend to, to, to to, to, to favour him in that regard. We saw it in, in the way in which he became uh, conser- leader of the Conservatives. If pushed, he can fight. Uh, as of now, it is still, the most likely outcome is still one that would put Miliband in number 10 because of that inherent voting bias that, that exists within um, um, uh, the British system. It, but almost certainly requiring a, a coalition partner, and whether that's going to be uh, the Liberal Democrats or perhaps something smaller, depending on the numbers, whether it's the DUP in Northern Ireland or, or this, the Nats in Scotland or Wales, there are all sorts of possible permutations. Uh, but a Labour-Liberal Democrat um, uh, coalition is the most likely of a lot of unlikely uh, degree of uh, uh, set of outcomes at the moment. And the relationship between the two parties, even though it has warmed, at least at a a public level in more recent times, is still pretty poisonous. And it would be very difficult to see how a coalition agreement could be reached between the two of them. Mark Hennessy, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. (laughs) 